This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. I'm here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Cut to the chase. Now here's Laura Curran. Sunday, it's a little chilly, it's blustery. Uh, of course, I'm not going to complain about it because I can't control it. But we're going to get cozy in here. We've got Diego and Matt and Ryan working the boards. Uh, not Ryan, Christian today. Hello. Uh, so we got to talk about Trump. I know everyone's talking about Trump. Everyone's told you what they think about Trump from your mother-in-law to the pundits to the politicians to the taxi driver. Uh of course, nobody should be above the law. Uh, and I'm not really going to get into the merits of the case. From what I've seen and read, it seems a bit flimsy to me, but we won't know the actual charges until Tuesday. Uh, what worries me, and I kind of woke up feeling a little bit unsettled this morning thinking about this, is the the tit for tat that is escalating. Where will this all end? Do we end up with a banana republic? Uh, it feels like the extremes are dominating the conversation. Uh, and I, a lot of people I talk to are saying, mm, you know, it kind of feels like the tectonic plates are shifting beneath our feet. Don't know what to make of it all. Uh, and then I started wondering, you know, with what's happening nationally and in the state, is this what happens when the zealots, the purists, the, the most self-righteous that can never admit they're wrong or for whom compromise is a dirty word – is this what happens when those folks are in government? Uh, and I see it on the left and the right. Uh, I saw Zach Williams. He's a reporter at Newsday. He covers Albany. I've had him on my podcast. He tweeted this video of a bunch of elected officials up in Albany, Senator Brisport, Assemblyman Epstein, Assemblywoman Forrest, and Gonzalez Rojas, were with a bunch of protesters, and they were singing, tax the rich, tax the mother effing rich, over and over. These are elected officials. I'm thinking this is not very statesmanlike. But you have it on the other side as well. You have people like Matt Gates uh, talking about, you know, people who don't agree with him are, quote, spreading lies and bull s. This is what it's come to. Uh, you know, and then you have true believers like Alvin Bragg, who said during the campaign that Trump was in his crosshairs. And then here we are with some indictments coming down. Um, you've seen it on the other side as well. Uh, we've seen, you know, 15 votes to get a speaker elected. That sounds like true believers are having a hard time deciding who's in charge of their party. So what do we do about it? Uh, the other thing that's very troubling to me, and this is something I want to talk about more on future episodes, is this banning of books. Uh, the right is accusing the left of doing it. The left is accusing the right of doing it. But the whole idea of banning books. And I don't care if you're on the right or you're on the left or you agree with Matt Gates or Alvin Bragg or whatever. That's fine. That's up to you. That's democracy. 
But the whole idea of banning books is the beginning of the end of democracy. We've seen this in other places. You've seen, you know, the Nazis joyfully around a fire with throwing books in it. You've seen this too many times. Uh, So my first guest, Will Marshall, is going to help explain how we got here, how we got to this weird place, and maybe even come up with solutions. So Will Marshall is president of something called, it's a think tank, based in D.C., Brussels, and the U.K., the Progressive Policy Institute. And its mission is to promote a liberal democracy. Now, that's liberal as in the classic Enlightenment sense that you might have learned about in college, about open society, free thought, self-determination. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Laura. So you argue in a recent piece that you wrote on The Hill uh, that the populist fury on the right and the left, so on the left, I think, Occupy Wall Street, tax the rich, socialism. On the left, I think anti-elitist drain the swamp crowd um, are really different sides of the same coin. And what they have in common is the 2008 financial meltdown. Can you explain that? Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's a kind of a shocking thing how long the after effects of that uh, Great Recession have lingered. Uh, But that was the episode that really radicalized so many people, the Tea Party on the right, which, Mm -hmm. and you know, Trump is just a kind of fulfillment of the Tea Party. Party. I mean, he's not very different uh, than that right-wing populism that really got organized uh, in reaction to to the uh, meltdown of 2008-2009. And uh, and on the left, you had Occupy, as you pointed out. It sounds like you still got some legislators up there that like that kind of politics, mm. Antifa and all this stuff. So, you know, one one sort of extremism, uh, licensed uh, uh, equal and re- reciprocal extremism on the other side, at least where the economy was concerned. And everybody was competing to be putting down capitalism, bashing business. Uh, my article talks about the anti-tech crusade. Uh, yes, and I want to get into that in a bit, too. What's strange to me, though, is 15 years ago this happened. You know, we, we have a whole new set of economic challenges to which this populism really doesn't offer any convincing answers. Right. Uh, so you talk that we need you, you say that we need something that you call a post-populist economics. What do you mean yeah. by that and how do we get there? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Democrat. Let me let me confess that uh, a pragmatic one, radically pragmatic one. And my heroes tend to be leaders who knew how to inspire confidence in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, a place called hope. Barack Obama was always, you know, offering a hopeful vision uh, Jack Kennedy, uh, the new frontier, you know, uh, and, and Franklin Roosevelt. You know, these were not people that were trying to throw the nation into a state of clinical depression, right? They were trying to lift spirits. They were trying to foster a sense of national confidence and even competitiveness, you know, with the, you know, the space race, you know, we can win this, you know, uh, a free society is always going to out innovate, you know, uh, communist totalitarian ones. And what's so striking to me today is just how, uh, how the political class is fostering, you know, denial, defeatism, uh, pessimism and gloom. And you see it on both sides. And so where are the leaders who are going to you know, get America out of this funk and say, look, you know, we have a big deal here with the Chinese. You know, China is a successful country with a totalitarian government. 
They've got a model. Uh, they think it's better than our model. Well, let's compete. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but instead of sort of taking on big national challenges like that, we're in this kind of mug fight in the, in the schoolyard uh, kind of politics that you talked about at the top. You know, you talk about leaders who inspire confidence. I think you can look at FDR. You can look at Ronald Reagan. You can look at Republicans and Democrats who really brought the country together with a shared sense of mission, uh, which is very different from throwing bombs, saying things to get clicks and likes and and, quote unquote, riling up your base. Mm -hmm. Uh, So but but I find that there are a lot of sensible politicians out there, but it's hard for them to break through the clutter because the conversation is being dominated by, of course, the extremes because it's more interesting. It's more sexy. Maybe it gets more advertising revenue than government, which maybe should be a little boring, but uh, I guess that doesn't sell. Well, you're right. I mean, everybody sort of blames social media, you know, because like-minded people can find themselves. There are people like them really easily and, and everybody can adopt the exact same view as the community, and then everybody's happy, right? Uh, but the old media bears a lot of, of the blame here, too. I mean, look at the cable television, right? I mean, we've, we've just had a very uh, so, so, some sobering revelations about how Fox News was pumping out election lies, knew they were lies, but didn't do anything about it. Why? Because when they pumped them out, their ratings stayed high. Hmm. And when they stopped pumping them out, you know, their ratings fell. So what do you think they did? <laughs> So, you know, um, look, I mean, it takes a lot of people to degrade our democratic system. But I'm I'm really struck by how, uh, you know, the outrage machine is uh, kept in business by uh, cable television on both sides and the social media working together. And you're right. You know, that's what drives eyeballs. That's what drives ratings and advertising dollars. Um, and But I do think there's a growing body of Americans who's just fed up with it. I hear it. Uh, I hear it. In fact, know, there are there are so many, at least here in New York, there are a lot of people who are opting out of either party and being independents or maybe joining a smaller party. They're just kind of fed up with all of it. And tuning it out. But, uh, but, but you know, we, but, but the media kind of play, you know, the media uh, uh, follows the drama. Of course. And so that's course. what we get. So one thing that has been uniting Republicans and Democrats in D.C. lately is attacking tech. You call it tech mm-hmm. lash, like a backlash, uh, mm-hmm. that it's too powerful, it's harvesting our information, it's aiding China, they're too powerful, there's their monopolies, et cetera, et cetera. But you push back against that. What is your argument? Well, my argument is that um... – you know, Donald Trump uh, talks about carnage. He talks about how terrible our economy is, about companies that sold out American workers, about how trade betrayed the workers. It's all negative. It's all dark, a, a narrative of, of demoralization and gloom. Uh, you know, but we've got some successes in our economy, and we invented the technology, you know, the Internet economy, the online economy. That all became – it arose from – entrepreneurship and the, the, the marriage of, of advanced science uh, and entrepreneurship in, in the United States. We just published something that showed the other day that two-thirds of the world's population is online. Hmm. It's a remarkable kind of milestone. So what we're doing there is something that's really important and in the main very successful. Are there problems that arise from all these new technologies? Of course. Do they need to be uh, watched over carefully? Yes. Do we need regulation from time to time? Yes, we need all that. 
But but both sides of the, you know, on the left and the right, they've come up with this brilliant idea that we should break these companies up for different reasons. Uh, and, uh, and they're very specific. They're very specific on the companies that they want to break up. It's just it's just a few. Right. Uh, Google, well, yeah, Amazon, so, Apple, Meta. There's four. They're basically four. Yeah. Uh, it's Meta, Google, uh, the, yeah, those four. And yet the, the claim is that, you know, these companies have too much market power. To, they've consolidated their markets, and in some way that's a bad thing. Uh, and they're shedding and, jobs know, by the tens of thousands. I mean, it's not as if they're having a hard time, too, right now. Yeah, well, they all grew during the pandemic because they were, in many cases, I mean, how many people – you know, uh, kept things going by ordering off Amazon or what have you. And, and so uh, they they expanded during the pandemic. Now they're shrinking some. So it's hard to say that they're just uh, crushing it out there in the marketplace when they're laying off tens of thousands of workers. But there's fundamentally sound companies that will find ways, and they're innovators, and they're going to find ways to stay in business. But the thing is, they're doing what you want companies to do. They invest a lot of money in the American economy in expansion, in rapid expansion. That leads to good job creation. They pay high wages. They have high productivity, and they have low prices. You know, how much did you pay for your last Google search? Right, right. <laughs> a lot of these these services are provided for free, and uh, so they are actually they're actually uh, you know net you, you know, they're not contributing to. To the inflation that we see everywhere else across the physical economy. I am uh, Laura Curran. You're listening to Cut to the Chase. My guest is Will Marshall of the Progressive Policy Institute. So you're a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. I think we both um, have the same philosophy of being pragmatic, that government should work for the people, not tell people what to think or how to feel. Um, What is your advice for Dems right now, especially as... uh, uh, you know, it feels like a presidential election is coming right around the corner. It's next year, but really in in real time, it's going to be here any minute. What is it? What is a winning message for Democrats now? Well, one that tries to foster some hope and optimism about the future. I looked at some numbers in January. Thirty six percent of the public of Americans say they're confident their families will be better off economically in five years. It's a record high lack of confidence in, the, in their economic future. That's right. We should be, you know, we should be confronting that directly and saying that's, you know, that's not the right way to do it. Here's how we, here's how we win. Here's how we outcompete China. Here's how we get more investment and more technological breakthroughs with uh, AI and quantum computing on the, on the horizon and uh, and uh, gene editing. You know, Incredible we just will. I'm sorry to interrupt. We just have a second. Yeah. We have uh, two minutes left. But uh, yeah. you mentioned AI, and this is this is my question to you, as someone who you know, you're someone who is bullish on American tech. Uh, I, I, if I'm reading your mind, you know, you're not for overregulation. Let them be smart, innovative, create jobs, change the future for the better, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a big question that I have is, does all of this tech pave the way for an illiberal, illiberal world? Meaning, is there a tension between digital innovation and freedom? You know, social media should bring us together, connect us, but it's programmed to drive us apart yeah. the way it is now. And there's fear that AI is going to take over jobs, the culture, art, even how we think. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, the changes that these technologies are bringing are really disruptive. There's no question about it. And you got to have an intelligent dialogue about oversight, supervision, and regulation where abuses are actually demonstrated. So there's no question that, you know, uh, tech is scary, too. Mm-hmm. Big change is scary. So I understand that. But on balance, this country's never 
shrunk from the uh, from the promise of innovation, of, of unleashing uh, individual ingenuity and 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 and, uh, and investing in science, you know, and, and technological development. This is what we've always been about. We're a modern, forward-looking country. We're kind of optimistic yes. about our ability to control these forces. But we are now because our our political leaders are all telling us to be pessimistic and gloomy about them. Yes, but, but we know, can think for ourselves, can't we? Rigged and everything else, yeah. and uh, you know, capitalism's doomed and all this. Will Marshall, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase. It's my pleasure, Laura. Thank you, listeners. Stay tuned. We're going to shift gears from the national scene to the state, the budget. Fights going on up in Albany. We're going to speak to Democratic Senator, uh, excuse me, yes, State Senator Kevin Thomas. He is pro-charter school. Not a lot of Democrats are. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a little-known pharmacy bill in there that could affect how your prescriptions are filled. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Hello, everybody. I am really happy that you're joining us here today on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And a special little bit of love going out to everyone listening on our stream on WABCradio.com and on the 77 WABC mobile app. It's easy to put in your pocket and take us wherever you go. All right. Kevin Thomas, Senator Kevin Thomas, he's actually my senator up in Albany, representing a big chunk of Nassau County uh, with the budget update. Senator Thomas, welcome. Thank you, Laura. So happy that you are one of my favorite constituents. And And you love all of them equally, right? You love all of your constituents equally. (laughs) (laughs) So the budget is delayed. It was due midnight, March 31st. Didn't happen. No surprise there. So I guess you're stuck in Albany for a little while, huh? Well, yes. Um, we are coming back next uh, tomorrow, uh, and hopefully we can get an update and hash things out uh, before uh, Passover starts. So there's a lot going on. Bail reform, menthol cigarettes, good cause eviction tax, the rich, zoning, yada, yada, yada. But I want to talk to you about charter schools. So the governor has proposed for lifting the charter school cap. Uh, The Assembly and the Senate leadership don't want that to happen. You, however, are a Democrat who supports charter schools. What's the latest? What's the biggest news coming out about charters and where do you think it's going to go? I mean, listen, charter schools are public schools that operate independently from uh, the regular school district, right? That's right. Right now, uh, we are still uh, negotiating with uh, all parties uh, to figure out how best to tackle this. Uh, so, I mean, there's nothing I can share at this moment, uh, but we're, we're working on it. <laughs> now, do you get heat uh, from some of your colleagues for your support of charters? Do you hear from the UFT about it as well? 
teachers uh, listen i i am unique in uh the democratic conference um, my colleagues uh, have not criticized me for my stand on charters and uh, uh, NICET, uh, which is the uh, teachers union out here on Long Island, mm-hmm. uh, has uh, not criticized me either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like the unicorn in uh, uh, the batch here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, even in the last election, NICET had uh, endorsed and uh, endorsed my candidacy wow. uh, for my reelection mm-hmm. um, it, it, because of the work that I do mm-hmm. uh, out here in the district. You know, we've been able to fully fund the foundation aid. We brought uh, a universal pre-K to Long Island. Uh, and they know what I'm doing in uh, specific school districts to make sure that they're going in the right direction and that, you know, I'm looking out for teachers and which is their main uh, goal. So uh, I'm I'm unique. <laughs> you are. And, you know, it, I think it's good to hear. You don't hear often of little compromise, you know, they see the whole body of work. They're not just focused on this one issue with laser focus. So that's that's kind of good news. Uh, so recent poll, uh, recent polling has shown that more than 60 percent of New York City parents want charter schools. Uh, yes. My I have to be honest with you, my thinking has evolved in charter schools. I was on the Baldwin School Board. That's how I got involved in this whole politics thing. Uh, and I it was against charter schools. I'm thinking they're going to take the money for our schools and give them to charters. I didn't want it. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that I've had really had the chance to think about it, why would we deprive someone, a parent, of their right to send their children to what they feel is a better school, if that's possible? How how could I take that away from a parent? I would expect that myself. So with Absolutely. with this with this popularity in the communities, uh, you know, minority communities, all communities for charter schools, why do you think it's so hard to get this done? Why has this been a fight for so long? Well, it's a fight because both uh, the regular uh, school district and the charter schools are on the same budget line. So they have to share the same education. uh, Make sure we understand education funding is for students. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. It's not just for institutions, it's for the students. And as a parent of a four-year-old, you know, I would like alternatives to the regular school district uh, so that, you know, based off of my uh, um, options, I can give my child the best education possible in that area. Now, a lot of people, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say a lot of people think this is an urban issue. This is a city issue. But your district covers areas in Roosevelt, Hempstead, and others with robust charter schools. In fact, they have to build new buildings. They have to go higher. They're bursting at the seams because parents see their own districts as they, you know, whether they're failing. I'm not going to characterize them, but they don't want to send their kids there for whatever reason. We see these charters now booming. Uh, so talk about the suburban charter phenomenon. Absolutely. So in areas like uh, the village of Hempstead and in Uniondale, Freeport, um, there's been a lack of uh, funding.
funding for those school districts based off of years of uh, mishandling by the school boards there. Um, and now, you know, since uh, uh, these schools have popped up, the charter schools, the, the teacher, the, the parents have alternatives to send their kids to school. Um, I've um, spoken to several parents out in the village of Hempstead who are happy about having an alternative to the uh, traditional uh, schools that they have. Uh, they're happy that there is an alternative for them that's not a Catholic school or a private school where they have to pay tuition. Mm. You know, again, this charter schools are public schools, but they just work independently. Right. So that alternative makes them happy. That alternative uh, changes a lot of lives, and that alternative educates the next uh, leaders of New York. So, Kevin, before I let you go, one more question for you. Uh, Not charters, having to do with zoning. You understand the suburban zoning problem. You understand probably a lot of the solutions as well. What's your take on the governor's plan to strip zoning away from local municipalities? So let me give you some background here. You know, the governor is right. We do need more housing on Long Island. Uh, affordable housing. Agreed. We need to. Uh, there was a recent article in Newsday that showed that a lot of Long Islanders moved out of Long Island because of how expensive housing is and taxes. So she has the right intentions here of trying to get more housing. The only problem here that uh, uh, I've come across is. The infrastructure, the lack of infrastructure that we have here on Long Island. We don't have the proper water infrastructure. We don't have the proper uh, sewer infrastructure. Um, the capacity, our sanitation capacity is uh, sometimes uh, a little too saturated. Our school district capacity, our fire district capacity. There's so much here that we need to look at mm-hmm. before we start building. Yeah. So I would suggest, uh, I strongly suggest it to the governor's office, let's go to the municipalities that actually want to build, uh-huh. give them the uh, resources, the money to upgrade their infrastructure so that we can build. And uh, using the stick to force uh, um, you know, a community to have housing is the wrong way to go. More carrot, uh, less I, stick. Yes, but... but Kevin, thing, I'm right? sorry we, to cut you off, but we got to leave it yeah. there. I hope you come back okay. on Cut to the Chase. Good luck up there. You're in the sausage factory. It. You're getting it done. And I will talk to you soon. Will do. Take care. Bye. All right. After the break, we're going to speak with someone who will help us understand something that's tucked in the foot-tall thousands and thousands of pages budget. It's called the Prescription Drug Pricing and Transparency Act. Everyone's talking about menthols, eviction, zoning, bail reform, etc. No one's talking about this, but we are, because it just might change the way you get your prescriptions filled after the break on Cut to the Chase. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Cut to the Chase. Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. Hey, did I mention I want to hear from you? Some people are calling. Hang on. I'm going to get to the calls in a little bit. Uh, Call us. 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. And we are uh, eager to hear. I'm eager to, eager to hear from you on anything you're hearing on the show today. Okay, so New York State budget, it's late. It's going to be late. It's a $227 billion of your dollars uh, being spent on everything the state does, which is a lot. Think of the parks. Think of the sanitation. Think of the environmental. Think of all the payroll, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's about a foot high, which is really big, and tucked in there. Amid all of the controversial stuff, everyone loves to talk about bail reform. We're not allowed to have gas stoves. We can't smoke menthol cigarettes. Uh, you can't evict anyone. You want, want to tax the rich, et cetera, et cetera. One thing in there is called the Prescription Drug Pricing and Transparency Act. And it could change how you get your prescriptions filled. So this could actually affect your life. So it sounds like a good thing, right? These acts always have great names. Uh, but to help us understand this is Leah Lindahl. She is from the Healthcare Distribution Alliance, which represents healthcare wholesale distributors. So, Leah, I know the devil is in the details, but let's start with your 30-second elevator pitch. What's the proposal and why should we care? Hi, Laura. Thanks for having us on. Sure. Really appreciate your time. Um, you know, I think when we come into it, so healthcare wholesale distributors are essentially the entity that helps the logistics of the supply chain. So ensuring that all of the medication, all of the healthcare products are at your pharmacies, at your hospitals, at the nursing homes, kind of in the most timely and efficient and safe manner possible. And our companies are the ones that make that happen. So, ah, make sure that so you're the ones. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're, the, we're the ones that kind of work behind the scenes and make sure things are where they need to go. Um, and the governor's proposal, I think we, we understand the intent and mm -hmm. we, we appreciate kind of where she's coming from. But like you mentioned, the devil is always in the details and yeah. how things play out. You don't want to have some type of unforeseen consequence that could really interrupt patient care. And that's really where we're looking at, at this proposal. The, there's two pieces to it that we're primarily looking at. And one piece is a pretty large transparency section where manufacturers have to report price increases, um, which you can understand as a patient in New York, you kind sure. of want to see where your pricing is on your medication and, and rightfully so. Um, and some of those fees, I know there are concerns with kind of the mechanics of how that would be done and how manufacturers report to the state and, and what's done with the information. Mm. Um, but the one piece where we look at it is there's a requirement for wholesalers or our companies to make sure that the manufacturer is reporting those uh, price increases to the state. Um, it's something that we're really not responsible for. So that's uh, a choice that the manufacturer is making when they increase the price and we don't have insight into those price increases. You have no and insight way, and you also have no say. Exactly. But are, yes, you, but are but, you saying you would be responsible for, for doing the reporting? We're responsible for making sure the reporting is done Ooh. and we're not allowed to deliver the product unless we verify that that report has been sent to the state. So how and would this affect, concerned. how <laughs> would this, if, say, if this were to pass, how would this mm -hmm. affect I go to I like to support a local uh, pharmacy. I don't want to go to Walgreens or Rite Aid. You know, I, my neighborhood guy, uh, maybe my kid works there. Whatever. It's a community place. Right. How would that affect the little guy, the little pharmacy guy? Honestly, I think it affects everybody. We're um, we're 
really, we are kind of a go-between between about 1,500 manufacturers and having to make sure that they're reporting correctly and accurately to the state would really hold our members' hands and their ability to make sure that those products are getting where they need to go in, in the efficient, most efficient way possible, right? Um, we don't know when the report's done or how it's done and how to make sure that that's happened. And that's really where we're concerned is that if we're going to, to be responsible for making sure those products are getting to where they're going, we can't be hamstrung by making sure reports are sent in by kind of an outside entity that we're not responsible for. Hmm. Um, uh, and the, the independent pharmacy piece that you brought up is kind of a, a good segue. We have another issue within the budget, which is a transparency provision on certain supply chain entities, hmm. um, one of which is called a pharmacy service administrative organization. And you can kind of think of them as like a bookkeeper or kind of a back office support for independent pharmacies specifically. Right. So they, they um, don't have like yeah. Walgreens has an in-house, lit, you know, lawyer, in-house yeah. bookkeeper, you know, all this, all these things are done by corporate. When you're just a little guy, you have to do it all yourself or your, your, your members can help provide those service for, for them, right? Exactly. Yes. So these are, yep, they're exactly that. Like when you are a larger corporation, you have some of those entities and you can hire a bookkeeper, you can hire um, other pieces to kind of make your business operate. But for the small independent companies, they utilize, um, they're called PSAOs for a shorter, a shorter acronym for, yeah. for their longer name. But the, it's about $200 a month for the pharmacies to choose to utilize their services that they help their contracting support. And the New York budget proposes to um, have them be registered with the state or licensed with the state and then uh, pay a $5,000 fee to be to be registered with the state. Wow. And then various reporting mechanisms that those entities really don't do. Um, so it's just not reflective of their business. And we're worried that if you add that layer onto it, then perhaps some of those PSAOs may not operate in the state any longer or find it difficult to continue operating and supporting independent pharmacies. So I'm going to be cynical for a minute. Um, sure. This this sounds to me uh, like the state is trying to overregulate in an attempt, and you don't have to say whether you agree with me or not, because I don't want to get you in trouble, uh, but in an attempt to say like they're siding with the little guy, the seniors who's paying too much for their medicine and all of this, uh, to sort of get a quick headline like we did something about this, even though they really didn't, all they seem to be doing is burdening the industry with more record, more reporting and more legislation. Now, we've seen the AARP and the NAACP and about 40 other organizations are supporting this provision in the budget. Uh, but you do have some chambers of commerce, such as the Long Island African-American Chamber, the Rochester Chamber and others mm-hmm. who are against it because of, you know, of what I just said. So with, with all of these heavy hitters going for this and with political hay to be made from politicians for passing it, how do you how do you break through the clutter and get your point across? I'm hoping I mean, I, I hope some of the pieces just become clear, like we're not trying to be like wholly opposed to these efforts, right? Like we want to be a partner with the state. And if there's things that that we can do to help the state kind of meet their objective and goal of reducing costs or getting more information or transparency, that's that's not where we're trying to kind of block the way for the state to have access to. Um, But you're right. I think there are pieces where 
you get transparency, but for what, what's the end purpose? Like, where does this go? And if it's just reporting for reporting's sake or right. and is this, another is, entity's reporting. And Leah Lindell of the Healthcare yeah. Distribution Alliance, I have to say, uh, this could, you know, overregulation is a slippery slope. If it's, if it's this industry right. now, maybe it's another industry later. Uh, Leah, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And for bringing something that most people aren't talking about to the fore. The devil is always in the details. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now I am going to go to my next guest. He is a what John Katsimatidis likes to call a common sense Democrat. And he's a common sense Democrat in law enforcement, no less. He is Suffolk Sheriff Errol Toulon. Errol, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Laura. You got it. I just have to tell everyone, in case you don't know, you uh, were a bat boy for the Yankees. You grew up in the Bronx and you learned a lot <laughs> from that. And uh, I, I think probably also what you learned is diplomacy because you're on Long Island, which has is very red these days. Uh, you as a Democrat won your election quite handily in 2021. Um, but what we want to talk about today is your new, brand new, this is an exclusive, a cut to the chase exclusive, a brand new intelligence center uh, that you have unveiled. Who, what does it do and with whom are you partnering? So we're very proud to uh, unveil a corrections intelligence center. And there is no uh, intelligence center or in, the, in the United States that's gathering uh, intelligence uh, inside jails and prisons across the United States. And so uh, we decided to take a more proactive measure rather than being reactive to different things that are occurring, not only different trends and, and incidents inside of our correctional settings throughout our country, but also the intelligence that we can gather to assist our law enforcement partners in solving or preventing crimes you know, in our community. And we're really proud. You know, Right now we have the Nassau County Sheriff's Office New York City Department of Correction, New York State Department of Correction, Westchester Corrections, and Morris County, New Jersey Corrections, including our, you know, my own sheriff's office, that now has individuals seated in our center um, working every single day to gather intelligence, share trends that are occurring. And then the, the most interesting thing is that we have 20 additional counties throughout New York State that are, are participating virtually um, so we're, we're looking uh, really to change the whole paradigm of just jails and prisons throughout the United States. Hmm. So a first of its kind jail intelligence network, which actually it seems quite intuitive when you think about it, uh, sharing trends across different jurisdictions, what kind of data you're getting, whether the trends, best practices, potential threats. Uh, it makes a lot of sense because we know crime has no borders. Uh, you know, you could live somewhere and be convicted of something or, or at least charged with something in another jurisdiction. And what what are the trends that you're seeing now? I mean, because in a jail, that's where you have people who are accused of crime. Uh, so you're going to get a lot of interesting information. What what are you seeing now in Suffolk County that you could say is happening in other places as well? Well, the fentanyl issue is probably mm. the biggest issue that's affecting uh, all of us across the United States. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because not only is it infiltrating our communities, and there's a, there are many attempts for it to be infiltrated through uh, the smuggling of contraband inside of our jails. Um, you know, many uh, people will try to attempt to use liquid fentanyl to try and get to the inmates that are in custody. 
But as we start to learn more about the trends of fentanyl uh, by gathering intelligence, and this is either cultivating confidential informants or uh, other methods of gathering intelligence inside of our facilities, we're learning how we can combat this. But this is not only a, a U.S. issue, it's a border issue. Yeah. And so we're really working uh, closely with all of our partners to see what we can do to help stem this tide and save lives in our country. Now, you started your career at Rikers. Um, are you what are you hearing in the chatter about uh, perhaps New York City working with you guys? So we're very fortunate. New York City was one of the first agencies to join us uh, in this partnership, and they've been working very, very well with us. I, I can tell you, uh, Commissioner Louis Molina, who's the new commissioner, mm -hmm. and his staff has been very, very proactive in working with us in many, many of the initiatives that we're creating. And so they were the first ones to actually uh, uh, assign two staff members uh, to our center uh, to work and see what we're doing. And if you think about just the jurisdictions that we're looking at, we're talking about a center that can now look at 20,000 inmates right now across various jurisdictions of, uh, you know, if we include New Jersey, we'll start the tri-state area, but basically in New York State. And, you know, we, we've partnered our phase two of this project will be the states of Delaware, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, Chicago, Nevada, and California that have all agreed to participate. And that will be through a virtual uh, meeting every two weeks. But that data or information sharing can happen instantaneously uh, with the staff at the center. You know, this is great to hear. We hear a lot about government dysfunction, people in their silos. But the fact that you can, through this center, really work with other jurisdictions, other experts in the field, other agencies for overall public safety, especially when we're facing this fentanyl crisis and, and violent crimes, uh, I think should give people some hope. It might not get the attention that it deserves, but good things are happening. Uh, and and so how, how do you find it frustrating to get the word out about the positive stuff when everyone wants to focus on the negative? You know, it is very challenging. You know, first of all, corrections in prisons isn't glamorous. It's, and, and some people, some might say it's the Rodney Dangerfield of law enforcement. Don't, don't get no respect. You no, know, you know, it really isn't. You know, I'm in my four, I started my career in 1982, mm. and I have seen it involved in a positive aspect of the things that many jails and prisons have, have attempted to do. But the public is is not informed, and uh, the media is not going to grasp onto something that's going to be positive coming out of jails and prisons sometimes. Thankfully, you are uh, by allowing me to speak about, about this subject. But, you know, it's something it's like they're tucked away, leave them alone, and we don't want to know about it. Yeah. Well, Sheriff Errol Toulon, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase. Thanks for the work that you do, and thanks for being a common-sense Democrat. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, you got it. All right, listeners, stay tuned because I'm going to hear from you. The number is 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Cut to the Chase. Laura Curran joining us live. It's
Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the Cut to the Chase. I am your hostess, Laura Curran. Um, if you want more Cut to the Chase, you know I got a podcast. It's called Cut to the Chase Extra, and you can get it wherever you get your podcast. It's a little bit longer conversations. We keep it to about a half an hour about the issues of the day. Okay. So, callers, we're, we have a lot of people wanting to talk. That's great. Let's start with George in Rockland. George, what's on your mind? Well, thanks for taking my call, uh, Ms. Kern. Uh, you mm. have a very interesting uh, show. Thank you. And all the best to you. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, censorship, okay? Mm. Uh, this is a long, big topic, and I'm sure you don't have the time for it, okay? But they're calling it now cancel. It's the same thing, okay? You basically don't let somebody talk, okay? Right. And it goes everywhere, you know. They're canceling now um, uh, the former president. They're canceling... Uh, you know, when somebody go in for, and talk in front of a, a municipality and they don't want to hear him, they're canceling it. They right yell at them, away. they shout them down. You see this happening in the universities where people are supposed exactly. to be able to think for themselves. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you, know, you know, exactly. And, you know, I think it's probably uh, the latest censorship really comes from uh, universities, okay, colleges, universities, where some activists, uh, you know, manipulated by some professors, uh, you know, go and just shout uh, speakers down, okay? And everybody is a loser in a case like this. I agree. I think we're all mature enough to be able to handle to hear opposing points of view. And censorship is a sl- speaking of slippery slopes. I mean, it leads the, it it does lead to autocracy. George, I want to thank you so much for calling. Helen, talk about it more. Thank you. Uh, okay, we will. I will in future in future episodes. I promise. Um, Helen in Fairfield, what's going on? Hello, hello, Laura Kern. I like the variety of the topics that you choose. Thank you. I'm going to address the uh, discussion with regard to AI and what it is that the United States can do mm. to um, really look, take a look at it, see what the foibles are, see the dangers, and so forth. But my comment is. What prevents other countries who are in competition with us who will not adhere to anything that we're doing and that may pull ahead and do things that we have absolutely no control about? How do we address that? Helen, that is such an important question, and I have not heard it articulated quite like that before. Uh, We'll have rules, sure, but other countries won't. I mean, we see a little bit of that with TikTok, how TikTok has a very different uh, platform for kids in China. It's limited from what I've read to 40 minutes a day. It's all positive and educational and healthy, whereas our our kids can just sit there for hours and hours doom scrolling for horrible things. Uh, great point, Helen. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Sal, Seaside Heights. What's up? First of all, Christian, Diego, Izzy, all the screeners deserve raises. They do a great job. I know. How lucky am I to have such a team? You're blessed. I'm blessed. you're doing a great job, too. Thanks, Sal. Talk to John Katz about that. Yeah. In the meantime, I'm going to hit you with some rapid-fire bombshells. Okay. And you can respond. Go. First of all, what's going on with this railroading, the president who's done more to help my brother and sister American veterans since FDR, Mm -hmm. this is a is a phony judicial crucifixion. One other thing about that is is that Americans 
who owe their life by God's grace to my brother and sister and my uh, American veterans should be outraged that there is a economic fiduciary, financial, fiscal, monetary, emotional, mental, psychological, and spiritual crucifixion every day to American veterans by the U.S. government, local, state, federal, and the U.S. people. New York City is the richest city in the world, LC, and it's the only major American city that does not have a city administered, managed, run, and supervised retirement home for American veterans. And Biden and Harris attempted to close the Manhattan VA on 23rd and the Brooklyn VA, which means American veterans on Staten Island would have to go to the North Bronx or Westport, uh, Northport, Long Island and near the Hamptons or to East Orange, New Jersey. And that's the only federal VA hospital in the entire state. American veterans down the Jersey Shore go to Philadelphia and go over state lines. So we should be outraged about that. And Alvin Bragg, the moron, should be concerned about the drugs coming into the city. And Staten Island is the South Shore, is the cocaine, hashish, heroin, opiates, prescription, pain, distribution center of the world. And, it's, and, the, and the opiates are laced with, um, with fentanyl from communist China. So That's the crime. I want to just touch your point on veterans. Uh, People who willingly step up and put their lives on the line to defend our precious freedoms deserve a lot. Um, You know, I can say I live in Nassau County where we have a big veterans population. Uh, We've got a great government uh, agency serving veterans led by really good people. And it's really, I agree with you, it's really important we do everything we can to help these folks. Sal, I'm going to leave it there. Please call back. Um, okay. Chris in Catskills. I think hey, you have Lord, one minute. I love the first guest that you had on. They bring up, he brought up a lot of good points about the polarization on both ends of the political spectrum. And it ties into a dumbing down of politics, uh, a ruination of both major political parties Him tying in the 2008, uh, the mortgage, uh, foreclosure crisis, for primarily residential mortgages, uh, leading to uh, people taking up in arms and creating, you know, the Tea Party movement, which uh, morphed into the populist movement to the right of center, and your, uh, you know, against the 98% against the 1% uh, take back Wall Street, the which is, uh, you know, the militant progressive movement, which has morphed into the spinoff of the socialist movement. Unfortunately, this overemphasis of political ideology. I am a policy wonk, common sense, moderate Democrat like yourself, Mm -hmm. and our party has been ruined by the militant progressives and the socialists. And, you know, a lot of people in the media and people would argue that the populist movement isn't healthy under Trump, but we look at Trump and Biden and, you know, are these highly elected officials in the executive branch of government, whether it's Kathy Hochul, Donald Trump, uh, President Biden, are they just figureheads? Do they really know what's going on? Are we really problem solving all the areas in government and our country and the political system? Chris, or are we just, you know. Thanks for the call. And if you want to know what Chris is referring to, if you missed the start of the show, you can get Cut to the Chase as a podcast. Go on the WABC app. Uh, we didn't get to John in Garden City about housing near the Long Island Railroad, but maybe we'll get to him next time. Thank you for calling, everyone. Remember to get the app, go online, listen to WABC. Next, we have Ernie and Patricia winning the lotto just might ruin your life. 
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 